There's an often told story of the Buddha's awakening that after he sat under the Bodhi tree and was enlightened, as he arose and went down the road, he was encountered by someone who didn't know him. And he was so luminous and so beautiful in his enlightened state that the stranger said to him, what are you? Are you a god? He said, no. Are you a king? The Buddha said, no. What are you then? And the Buddha said, I am awake. The legend has it that the stranger didn't stop to receive teachings from the Buddha. And it's so much like us that in the presence of the miracle of awakening, of our own awakening even, we miss it. So what are we to learn from the Buddha's awakening? When asked what he teaches, the Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. He taught that the end of suffering is possible, that awakening is possible. And he taught what he knew about bondage and suffering and liberation. And he told us that our own enlightenment is up to us. That it's possible that just as he was a human being and we are human beings, that our enlightenment is also possible. He also said, Think with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as the wheels of the cart follow the oxen that draw it. Think with an impure mind, and unhappiness will follow you as the wheels of the cart that follow the oxen that draw it. So what does all of this have to do with the practice that we've been doing? What is the connection between the awake mind and the end of suffering? Many of you have asked, how do I know when I've really gotten it, when I'm really meditating? And what is there to be attained? How do I know when I've attained it? Martin Luther King gave something of an answer. He said, we have the choice between community and chaos. And in our own lives, we have that choice between purity and harmony and chaos. And how we are in our own lives, whether we live wisely in, our, in service to our humanity, or we live in a habitual and perfunctory way, following just the expedient conditions of the moment, that will determine our choice. So how do we know? when we've attained it. Aeneas Nin, who was a uh, French writer in the um, early part of the 20th century, said in one of her short books, 
about one of her characters. The day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Have you reached that stage where the risk to remain tight in the bud is more painful than the risk it takes to blossom? If you've reached it, then that's the beginning of your opening. So this spiritual path, this practice that we've undertaken, has a very small and very large miracle that is its attainment, and that is a change of heart. A change of heart that comes when we take the risk to blossom. And that change of heart is one from greed to generosity, from hatred to loving kindness and compassion, from ignorance to impeccability, wisdom, compassionate action in the world. In short, awakening. Tonight I'd like to talk about the two core principles of that mind and heart of awakening, wisdom and compassion. It's often said that wisdom and compassion are two wings of the bird of this mind of awakening. And when I visualize that, I imagine that, I see how if a bird couldn't fly if either one was missing, and that they're inextricably woven together in a part of that same mind. So these are the two principles that are necessary characterize the mind of awakening. So I'd like to reflect with you on what gives rise to this wisdom and compassion. First, it's not the search for knowledge. We so often mistake wisdom for accumulated learning, huge tomes of knowing this and that fact. So it's not that search, but it's looking deeply and discovering insight into what is already there, into the way things are. And that is what we've been doing all weekend, looking at the truth of this moment. And when you reflect on it and you think about it, there's nothing else going on in our lives but the truth of this very moment. What's past is gone. What's to come is not yet here. So as we look at the truth of this moment, we're looking at the truth of our lives. And when we look deeply, what do we see? The understanding that everything, 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 nothing is excluded. Everything is subject to change. Where is that pain that was in your left shoulder earlier on today? Even if you think it's still there, I can guarantee you that it's changed. Where is lunch? What's happened to it? It's changed. So all is subject to arising. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. And you may have also noticed that all of these phenomena that come and go, that arise and pass away, do so without your bidding, without your being able to control them. That pain in your shoulder, you didn't summon it, 
and he doesn't make it go away. So all that that is subject to arising and to ceasing is also not you. It's not self. It's not personal. And this is perfect wisdom. And from perfect wisdom naturally arises compassion. Now, although we can understand these words that I say quite easily, it takes most of us a lot of time to really understand what these words mean. And when I say really understand, I mean really understand in a profound way. That's not because I said so, or the Buddha said so, or Joseph or Russell said so or even that Rachel said so. It doesn't, it doesn't really strike us as true if it remains at the level of our brain, of our cerebral understanding. It's visceral. It's an understanding that comes in our bones. It's not just from ideas. Oh yes, that sounds good. That sounds reasonable. Yes, I think I'll believe that. I like that thought that kind of understanding is still from the brain. It's not yet at the level of our gut. Whereas insight knowledge is profound. Once we get whatever we get from insight, once we understand it on that level, that's not just of the brain. The doubt about which Joseph spoke last night is no longer a problem. So wisdom is the discovery of that which is universally and eternally true in all circumstances of life, whether they're difficult or painful or beautiful or joyous, in all of the changing circumstances of life and through all the vicissitudes of life. And I bet you can tell me about a few of them this weekend. So wisdom is that which knows what is true. And when we arrive there in that deep and profound knowing through insight, it's unshakable in us. That recognition of all of the changing phenomena, their nature, that nothing stays the same, and that to to cling to any idea of the way it ought to be, or the way it ought to become. And you know how we create ideals and think that there is some ideal of static perfection that we'll attain someday, and that once we reach it, we'll be there, that nothing will bother us. There'll be no problems, nothing none of the vicissitudes of life will come. If we cling to that idea that there is some ideal out there that we're constantly uh, trying to attain and always falling short of, that is to invite deep dissatisfaction and suffering into our lives. There is a wonderful passage in Ecclesiastes. It says, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. And it goes on. So the great rhythms and cycles of our life and of nature are captured in that passage. And wisdom is discovering in ourselves the recognition of these cycles and these seasons. 
a time to be born and a time to die, a time for joy and a time for sorrow. So to put it simply, everything changes. And in wisdom, in the acceptance of the way things are, the seasons of life, we don't struggle against the way they are. We rest in it because we recognize that there's nothing to hold on to. There's a teaching that the Buddha gave about the circumstances of our life in which he described what he called the eight worldly winds or dharmas that change as we go through our days. The gain and loss, which of course you may have noticed, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, and pleasure and pain. So the wisdom of the heart is discovering how to rest in the seasons of gain and loss, joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain, blame and praise. This wisdom is the ability to rest with openness and peacefulness, born of clarity, even through these worldly winds. And from this willingness and ability to rest arises profound understanding. But it doesn't mean that it's easy to do. It's pretty hard to act in the world without being afraid of these cycles, isn't it? Of gain and loss, of pleasure and pain. You've noticed pain this weekend. Many of you have talked about it in your interviews. And it's difficult. It's not easy to stand firm in the midst of that. And look at praise and blame. None of us likes to be blamed and how much we seek to be respected and praised. And yet, in the discovery of our true nature, we find a place of balance, a place of wisdom, and we can rest in the midst of all of those changes. There's a passage about Achan Chah, who is a very well-respected and was a very well-respected and loved Thai master. There's a passage in a book about him in which an old woman asks him, what do you teach? And he responded, listen, there is no one here, no owner, no one to be old, young, to be good, to be bad, no one separate, to be weak or strong. Just various elements of nature playing themselves out. No one born and no one to die. Those who speak of death are speaking the language of ignorant children. In the language of the heart, the eternal Dharma, there is no such thing. When we carry a burden, it's heavy. When there's no one to carry it, there's not a problem in the world. Do not look for good or bad or make anything, collect anything. Look for nothing at all. Do not be anything. And in this, you enter the gate of the deathless, the divine. There's nothing more, just this. So this way of looking, this way of seeing the very nature of our being, and this balance, this ability to rest in our being, knowing that there's nobody there, shouldn't be confused with a disappearance of personality or a disappearance of our very essence, such as it is. It shouldn't be confused with indifference or apathy or withdrawal from the world. You know that I don't care, it doesn't matter what happens, everything changes anyway. That's indifference. 
it's not that. It's understanding and wisdom, the natural changes, the natural rhythms of life in a more penetrating way. The change of the cells of our body and our breath, everything. And as we've watched our breath this weekend, we've noticed the changes that come, that not one is like the one before or the one following. Everything changes and the seasons revolve. And this wisdom gives us the strength in the midst of it all, as the Sufis say, to endure the measure of pain that is entrusted to each one of us to discover that capacity of our heart and being. And it carries with it fearlessness and a deep compassion and a centeredness that allows us to see all of life in its great mystery. So we've been working this weekend on discovering our ability to be present, our capacity for presence. And it's brought a kind of strength, I think you'll notice. And it's not that strength that fights against or struggles against what is, but it's the strength of openness and resting, a trust in the midst of all things. And we learn that trust when we sit here on our cushions. And we sit here and various things arise, pleasant, unpleasant, difficult. And you sit there and your body hurts and you sit with the pain of the mind and the pain of the body and the pain of the world. And you're taught and you've learned to include it, everything in your awareness and to also include it in your loving kindness. And we've learned that we're not picking or choosing or trying to make some kind of pleasant situation or create the conditions for personal pleasure. But we've learned that we're willing to un endure unpleasant conditions. And we, we do that in order to really understand what is true, to understand these unpleasant conditions for exactly what they are, and then to let them go. And perhaps you've learned that it's important in our experience, not whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, but what is important is that we are relating with mindfulness to what is arising. And we're simply observing and noting. And it's very useful and helpful in our path to wisdom to undertake this training, because surely on that path, both will always, will inevitably come, pleasant, unpleasant. Have you noticed? You may have a wonderful sitting where everything is open and clear, and then you come to the next sitting and the body is painful, or perhaps painful memories arise. But we sit, and there may be rapture and pleasant sensations, and we include that in our meditation. And then there's worry and fear and anxiety and expectation and the beautiful and the divine and the not so beautiful and the not so divine. And you sit in the center of all of those, and you just sit there in the midst of it. It reminds me of the story of Rosa Parks as she got on the bus and they said, you have to move. And she simply stayed where she was. She refused to move from her seat. And that's what we do in meditation. 
we don't give up our seats. And they said, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And she didn't get off her seat. And when she was asked by a reporter what inspired her to do such a heroic act to start the civil rights movement, she said, I did no such thing. I was just tired of getting up and going to the back. And out of that sense of connectedness with herself and with what is true, and probably with the earth itself, and that kind of strength and balance, the whole civil rights movement was born and grew. Sometimes all it takes to create a revolution is being tired of standing for injustice any longer, even if it's the accepted and habitual way. And that goes for our lives as well as our society. And even braver at times, as the world is fighting at war and full of injustice, is to sit down, sit quietly, and awaken from that cloud of unawareness that numbs us to the truth. So by coming here, we have agreed to do a revolutionary thing. We have agreed to sit down, sit quietly, come home, and discover our innate and perfect wisdom. This practice is very simple. Yes, I know it's difficult, but it's a profound and all-inclusive event. And if you come to it with that determination, with patience, and with perseverance, it's a truly transformative practice. You will have that change of heart about which I spoke earlier. It is a way of awakening to our full potential for freedom. Our willingness to discover our capacity for balance and presence in the face of all that you have expressed as your measure of pain this weekend. Physical pain, grief, loss, unfulfilled longing, desire, hope, love, wanting relationship, or even imagining simply our willingness to be present and to sit with it and to acknowledge with mindfulness what's actually happening in the mind. When we do that, we allow all of those forces to move through us. And as they move through us, they unclench, they are not they release, we untangle the tangle. And you may have also discovered that that release comes not by anything that we do, but by the space that we create. And in that space, there's cleansing and purification and an opening that naturally happens in our being. And if you've had difficulties this weekend, you should know that there's nothing wrong. But that's what happens when we undertake a process of purification. I have a teacher who says that all of our practice is a dance between purity and purification that we have these moments of purity 
and we have moments of purification. And the moments of purity may be wonderful and pleasant and light and illuminating. And the moments of purification may be difficult and may even feel dark and unendurable. But as we come through them, we come back into purity. So this seems miraculous, that simply by our being still, our willingness to do this revolutionary thing in the midst of this busy world, whether sitting or standing or walking or lying down, by paying attention and listening and being willing to be vulnerable and open to what's there. As Joseph said, the whole Dharma opens. So wisdom is knowing that all things change, that there are seasons to this life and cycles, and that in giving up our struggle against what is happening, against the very nature of things as they are, we come to rest. And in that resting, there is a trust and an openness and a clarity. And what naturally happens from this insight that produces wisdom is also compassion. Compassion, the second wing of that bird, the mind and heart of awakening. And compassion arises from, again, from our ability to be with what is difficult. The Tibetans teach that to understand spiritual life, you must take the practice of making your sufferings into the path, of welcoming your sufferings as the place of your practice. There's a story of a Tibetan Lama who was captured by the Chinese, jailed and tormented for 20 years and died in a Chinese prison. Before he died, he smuggled the letter out, of, out to his disciple in which he thanked the Chinese for their food and for the perfect opportunity to develop the compassion of the Buddha. He said, I might never have gotten the opportunity had I remained in Tibet. From this vision, everything balances out in the end, and the teachings of karma are a part of it. There's a chant they do in the monasteries of Thailand regularly. It says all beings are the recipients of their own action, of their words and speech, their body and their minds. They are the heirs, the inheritors of their actions, born of their intention, Related to the volition of their heart, their actions produce their sorrows and their joys. Whatever they do for good or for ill, of that karma that they create, they will receive this. This is a chant of compassion for all beings, so that they might understand this and do that which brings happiness to the world and to their lives. And this compassion naturally arises in the wise mind. Compassion, it's said in the text, is a fluttering of the heart 
in response to the suffering of another. And it can be undertaken as a training, a practice, where you see that all beings who are born into a body, who receive life, have a karmic history. And depending on what they do and the life that they lead, they have the choice of creating more sorrow or more freedom. Not unlike Martin Luther King's, we have the choice between chaos and community. But we know that we can't change another person's karma. We know it's difficult enough for us to work with our own. And you can care for them, and you can assist them in any way that you can. But in the end, each one of us creates our own freedom or our own bondage. Nobody else creates it. We create it. Yet we understand that suffering is part of the bond that we all in which we all participate as human beings. I had an experience when I was on my first three-month course at IMS a few years ago. In which I really saw the nature of compassion. I had been practicing, I guess, for about four weeks at the time. And a friend of mine was at the retreat. And she had to leave early because she had something that she had to do. And the day that she was leaving, she walked her suitcase out to the front of the building, and I happened to be there. As she left, since we were in silence, she embraced me, but she couldn't resist, and she said, she whispered in my ear, is there anything I should tell John? And John is the name of my husband, but it also happens to be the name of my father. And as she said that, I said, no, there was nothing to tell him. I walked back to my room and I broke into a deep, deep, deep weeping. And I had no idea why. This attack of weeping and sadness stayed with me for several days of the retreat. And I would go into the meditation hall and try to meditate. And this incredible, overwhelming sadness would overtake me. And I finally had an interview with one of my teachers. And I discussed what had happened. And in the interview, we discovered together that what had happened was the embrace of this friend of mine, the visual of her suitcase had dredged up a memory of my mother leaving when I was five years old because she was actually uh, leaving my father. And all of the feelings of that five-year-old girl that had been suppressed had not been uh, worked with, had not been processed, arose in the space of openness and vulnerability that had been created by those four weeks of practice. And as I worked with it in the following days, I realized on my cushion that what I was actually experiencing was the feeling of abandonment that had happened that many years ago that I had never allowed myself 
to feel for many reasons. And what finally happened to break this tremendous sadness was one day I went into the hall, I sat on my cushion, and as these feelings of sadness came up again, and I allowed them to come up and through, and I had the courage to face them. My sadness turned into a vision of five-year-old girls from every country and every part of the world, faces of five-year-old girls who'd been abandoned. And they came at me and went away, and came at me and went away. And at the end of that city, I realized that what had happened to me had not happened to me. That it had simply happened. That abandonment was something that had happened to millions of five-year-old girls all over the world. And it happened because we were born. It didn't happen because there was something wrong with us. It didn't happen because we were chosen specifically or personally to have abandonment happen. That it was just abandonment. And in that realization was compassion for myself and for all of the five-year-old girls in the world who had felt abandonment. And I understood at that point that compassion was not pity. It was not a feeling that one has from a superior place to someone who is inferior. It's a feeling that arises out of the wisdom of understanding that we are all here in the same predicament. That nobody escapes it. That we were born into this body and we were given, as I said before, as the Sufis say, a measure of pain that we must deal with. And so from wisdom, from the wisdom of understanding our deep human connection in this painful world was born a heart of compassion, a fluttering of the heart. And it's the wisdom of action. It sees the divine play, that all of us have a dance, that we are all born, we go through a certain dance, and then we die. But knowing that we are all one, the heart responds to every being that suffers and every being that is entangled. The Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that love and compassion are not a luxury. They are necessities of life and that without them this human race will not survive. I know he's right. I find rare moments in my prison, in the work that I do with inmates in a women's maximum security prison, many moments in which that there is an opportunity to touch the heart of another. And it's not just working with the inmate patients because I work in the hospital, but it's also working with the guards. The suffering of human beings is not confined to the powerless or to the oppressed. although we know how deep and how difficult that suffering is. It's palpable. But often we're so caught up 
in the role that someone plays that we don't see through to the human being, through to the tender, vulnerable, and painful state of being human. So we can look in our wisdom through the anger and the hatred that we might feel for another and see their fundamental longing for happiness. But just like we want to be happy, so too do they. And just as we want to be safe, so too do they. And this is a common bond that we all share as human beings. And this is the basis for transformation of the heart. It's easy to be compassionate for the oppressed. It's much more difficult to be compassionate like the Tibetan Lama for the oppressor. In the words of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to dis disarm all hostility. And the one who needs your compassion most is this one. Because if your compassion doesn't include yourself, it's not complete. So, this is what we're working on this weekend, bringing the great heart, our great Buddha heart, to rest in our true nature, to bring understanding in the midst of all of these miraculous circumstances of life, the changes, the happiness, the sorrow, the pleasure, the displeasure, the gain, the loss, the fame, the disrepute. If we're able to rest in the midst of all of these changing circumstances, if we're, we become peaceful, and when we are at peace, in spite of the way things are, everything becomes peaceful around us. So we make Dr. King's choice of community rather than chaos. And it's a tremendous gift. And it's something that the world needs very badly. And all the people in our lives and all of the things in our lives, it ripples out and it can be, effect and it can be affected. So just your place of peace just your willingness to sit here in the midst of the difficulty, your sense of being centered and open allows that peace to grow, that wisdom and compassion, that sense of being centered and open teaches us our innate loveliness. So I'll close with this poem from Galway Canal called St. Francis in the South. He says, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness to put a hand on its brow, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, 
blessings of earth on the cell. And the cell began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail. From the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teeth into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of sound. So let's sit for a moment. And as you sit, see if you can find that place of peace and of balance in yourself as you sit. And know what are the difficult things in your life now, the things that you long for, the things that are beautiful, and the blessings in the world around you. See if you can sense the peace of the Buddha within you in the midst of all of these, to open to that heart of wisdom and compassion. Be at rest. Breathing in and breathing out. Just being here. Just resting in this moment. Thank you for your attention.